Welcome to the How We Treat Colon and Rectal Cancer podcast, presented by the Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Dana-Farber in Boston. Join us as we review some of the more complicated colon and rectal cancer cases and discuss the treatment decisions with leading medical experts in the colorectal cancer field. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about a 67-year-old man who presented at age 51 with a right colon cancer. In the intervening years, he was found to be a Lynch syndrome patient through genetic tests that were done on other relatives. He was screened according to the Lynch syndrome protocol with a colonoscopy every year, but then was found to have a second tumor in the remaining colon. We're going to talk today to Dr. Matthew Yergelin, the patient's medical oncologist, who's also an expert on the genetically related cancers. We'll then speak to an expert about the new therapies, particularly for metastatic disease in MSI high tumors. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. This afternoon, we're with Matt Yergelin. Matt is one of our medical oncologists with an expertise also in the genetics of the colorectal cancers that uh, we see here at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So welcome, Matt. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm a medical oncologist in the GI Cancer Center here at Dana-Farber and also work in the Center for Cancer Genetics and Prevention with a particular focus on Lynch syndrome and hereditary gastrointestinal cancer syndromes, both the diagnosis and management of the syndromes. So we have a very interesting patient that we share that actually I operated on when he, when he was 51 years old. Mm-hmm. We did a right colectomy for poorly differentiated cancer that was T3N0 any other way to chemotherapy. And then, you know, he comes back basically 15 years later. But why don't you tell us how he came back and how he came to know that he had Lynch syndrome? Sure. So subsequent to his original cancer diagnosis, um, when you operated on him, his uh, son, who is a physician, um, sought out uh, genetic evaluation because of the family history of uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, it's a relatively small family, um, but our patient's father had colorectal cancer, I believe, in his 60s, and there are some more uncertain cancer diagnoses and more distant relatives. But the son ultimately underwent germline genetic testing, which confirmed that the family carries a germline mutation in. I believe it was MLH1. MLH1, correct. Uh, which yeah. is one of the DNA mismatch repair genes and certainly one of the more common genes to be mutated in families with Lynch syndrome. And so in the setting of this, it was presumed that our patient here as well has Lynch syndrome, although he's actually never undergone germline genetic testing. It's just been presumed because of his son's diagnosis. But he has two other children, both of whom were tested and both of whom were negative for the MLH1 mutation. He himself has been screened as if he has Lynch syndrome. Again, it's a presumed diagnosis, but he's been undergoing annual colonoscopies with um, his PCP, who was also a gastroenterologist, um, as well as periodic upper endoscopies as well to screen for um, to screen for Lynch-associated cancers. And more recently, in the setting of active screening, um, was found to have a, a small cancer 
I believe it was in his sigmoid colon, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, descending colon. Descending right. colon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it was a small cancer um, that had really developed over a 12-month interval that was um, biopsied and found to be invasive adenocarcinoma, and so I know he was sent back to you for surgical consideration. We'll talk about what operation we offered him, but it's what is the screening recommendation for uh, someone with uh, Lynch syndrome because we're seeing we don't routinely we didn't routinely test for mm -hmm. Lynch syndrome in anybody over the age of 50 up until about I'd say eight to nine years ago now mm -hmm. we do it on everybody correct and so there are a lot of people in their 70s and 80s now coming back with their second cancers in those people when you discover they have Lynch syndrome or in a person who gets germline testing in their you know, brother or sister had it, and they're in their 60s and 70s, what screening do you recommend? The standard recommendations for anybody with a diagnosis of Lynch syndrome who has really any intact colorectal uh, mucosa remaining would be an annual lower endoscopy to screen the entirety of uh, the colon and the rectum. Technically, the national guidelines are every one to two years um, screening colonoscopies. Our practice has typically been to perform annual colonoscopies because of cases like this where you, see, where you will see cancers develop over a reasonably short period of time. Um, and it's particularly important even in patients who have had back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back normal screening colonoscopies without polyps or adenomas, the risk really is still there. So our practice typically is to recommend annual colonoscopies, usually beginning between ages 20 to 25. Sometimes we'll begin earlier if there's a particularly young onset colon cancer in the family, but that's unusual. There are some guidelines out there suggesting that you may be able to start colorectal cancer screening a little bit later for certain Lynch families, those with MSH6 or PMS2 mutations. But that's not really a data-driven recommendation, um, and I would say that's pretty controversial. So we typically recommend annual screening be beginning between ages 20 to 25. I think the exception would be if somebody had somebody was older age, had particular medical comorbidities, that, that might be more of a priority for them. That might be one reason to be a little bit less aggressive. But And the clinical criteria, everybody gets asked the Amsterdam criteria on mm -hmm. their boards, mm -hmm. and then they subsequently seem to forget parts of it. So what are the really the key things when you're taking a history from, a, let's say, a patient in their 40s without previous history of colorectal cancer, but where you're a little bit nervous that this is a genetically related cancer. What's, what's the history that you would emphasize to send them to you for further uh, evaluation? Yeah, so, so classically, the, um, the types of clinical findings we would expect to see or that, that would prompt concern would be a young onset colorectal cancer you know, before the age of 50. Certainly any family history of colorectal cancer, family history of other cancers associated with Lynch syndrome, endometrial cancer, ovarian cancer, gastric cancer, sebaceous tumors of the skin, urinary tract cancers, and any individual who themselves has had multiple cancers, especially multiple colon cancers. What we've found, however, over the past five to 10 years in this era uh, where we're doing universal tumor testing to screen for Lynch syndrome, however, is that those criteria really are pretty imperfect and insensitive. Um, and age, for example, it's thought that close to half of all Lynch-associated colorectal cancers 
are diagnosed after the age of 50. And so using an age cutoff of 50, you'll inherently miss as many as half of all Lynch syndrome cancer diagnoses. Even if you apply things like the Amsterdam criteria, the Bethesda guidelines perfectly, you're probably still going to miss about a quarter of all Lynch syndrome uh, probands that are out there. And that's a large part of what's led to this momentum behind universal tumor testing to screen all colorectal cancers, and in a lot of cases, all endometrial cancers as well for evidence of mismatch repair deficiency as kind of a first past uh, screen for Lynch syndrome. And anybody who has such abnormal tumor testing is usually recommended to seek genetic evaluation. And if you were to prioritize the associated cancers with the colorectal cancer associated Lynch, I know endometrial would be first? Correct. Endometrial is statistically certainly the second most common, and in some cases, arguably, even the most common cancer associated uh, with uh, Lynch syndrome families. Um, and beyond that, ovarian cancer is probably statistically the next most common. The ones after that become, for the most part, quite a bit less common gastric cancer urinary tract cancer, sebaceous tumors of the skin, pancreatic cancer, hepatobiliary cancer, and then pretty rarely brain cancer as well. But it, it can be a very difficult diagnosis to pin down uh, relying on the family history because there is such a wide swath of cancers that are associated and because the penetrance can be pretty incomplete and you can have individuals in the family who simply never get cancer, even if they have Lynch syndrome. And what's interesting about Lynch syndrome is you will take out the cancer and they'll be an awful looking histology, mm -hmm. poorly differentiated with other, as you said, medullary features, mm -hmm. and yet they seem to do pretty well. Right. So, so one of the things that's been recognized really from the onset of microsatellite instability being uh, recognized in the early 1990s is that these tumors disproportionately have a lot of, like you said, ugly looking histologic features, poorly differentiated histology, signet ring cell or medullary type histology sometimes particularly large tumors, but interestingly, stage for stage, and again, this has been recognized um, since microsatellite instability was first uh, discovered, stage for stage, these cancers certainly have a better prognosis than their microsatellite-stable counterparts. And when you further subdivide MSI high you know, um, colorectal cancers, those with high-level microsatellite instability, between those associated with Lynch syndrome and then the non-Lynch MSI high cancers, it seems that the Lynch syndrome ones probably have the best prognosis of all stage for stage. Um, and so it, when we use our, some of our traditional practices to determine you know, choices of chemotherapy, for example, in the adjuvant setting, we often will uh, look at the, the histologic features to tell us whether or not somebody has a poor prognosis. And that can actually be a bit misleading in Lynch syndrome, where in spite of the poor prognostic looking histology that you'll see in uh, Lynch syndrome, these patients probably have the best prognosis stage first stage compared to their counterparts. Yeah. And so there are, our gentleman had a stage three cancer, one, actually it was, I think it was a T1N1. Correct. Uh, and the surgical choice was we did a completion colectomy with ileorectal anastomosis, uh, which he was very happy about because he uh, really had no other polyps and we can screen his rectum on a yearly basis pretty easily. And, but, and I think for somebody like him where this was a cancer that developed in the setting of really compliant screening, um, a, a more extensive surgical choice like that was, was probably particularly important. So he comes to you, T1N1, uh, Lynch syndrome positive uh, by, by strong family history with germline mutation backup. What 
chemotherapy would you offer? Now, he's had chemotherapy 15 years ago. What Correct. did you offer him? So the chemo that he had 15 years ago, and this was before the diagnosis of Lynch syndrome was known in the family, and also, you know, arguably not in the setting of quote-unquote modern-day chemotherapy. Back 15 years ago, he received single-agent 5-FU as adjuvant therapy. Tolerated it pretty poorly, actually, even though he was a very healthy guy back at the time. Nowadays, given some of the recent literature um, suggesting that in the adjuvant setting, MSI high colorectal cancers really don't derive any meaningful benefit from single-agent 5-FU monotherapy. I think it's particularly important for patients like him who opt for adjuvant therapy to get uh, a fluoropyrimidine such as 5-FU in combination with oxaliplatin. Certainly, the two-drug combination probably does have some efficacy in the adjuvant setting, whereas the single-drug 5-FU likely does not. Now, as far as stage 3 colorectal cancers go, you could argue he probably has the best prognosis possible from a stage 3 colorectal cancer. It was a single positive lymph node. The primary tumor itself was a T1 lesion, plus he has Lynch syndrome. And so he has pretty every positive prognostic factor going in his favor. And so, so I advised him that even without adjuvant chemotherapy, he actually probably has a pretty good long-term prognosis from this cancer. But I would expect that prognosis to be statistically, benef- uh, statistically superior with a six-month course of Folfox, which is ultimately what we started in him. Now, do uh, Lynch syndrome patients have some unique molecular characteristics that allow you more choices than the average non-Lynch patient? In the adjuvant setting, no. Um, in the adjuvant setting, my take on it is that it's really a choice of Folfox or capecitabine oxaliplatin versus nothing, because I personally am pretty swayed by the data that are out there um, looking at 5-FU monotherapy in stage 2 and stage 3 colorectal cancer, showing essentially no benefit in MSI high cancers. In the palliative setting or the metastatic setting, I think that's a bit of a different story. There certainly are data out there suggesting that arenatecan-based chemotherapy may be particularly beneficial for MSI high colorectal cancers. And much more recently, there's now emerging data looking at PD-1 inhibitors such as pembrolizumab in the metastatic setting where MSI high cancers seem to be particularly sensitive to those drugs. And I know there's a lot of interest right now in learning how to use those drugs maybe earlier on in the metastatic setting and in experimental settings, even looking at them in the adjuvant setting. But those are data that, that don't fully exist yet. And that's a great segue because that's going to be the next part of this podcast that Jeff's going to speak to our colleague mm-hmm. who's a, a quite expert in this about exactly that. Um, so, Well, I want to thank you for participating in this podcast. And, and if anybody has questions, they can go to the blog and they can email us and then we'll get back to you. Again, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. So I'm here with Osama Rama, who joined our faculty this past year and also works with the Center for Immuno-Oncology to talk a little bit about how immuno-oncology is fitting in with colon and rectal cancer patients. Welcome, Osama. Thank you. So, Jeff, uh, as you, uh, some tumors are sort of known for bad reputation for immunotherapy, and uh, traditionally... uh, now tumors are classified as immunogenic, like inflammatory type of tumors where immunotherapy had worked, like melanoma, lung cancer, and kidney cancer. And some of them are non-immunogenic or non-inflammatory. And colorectal cancer for a while had been uh, one of those until some recent data that came out and that showed some activity basically with immunotherapy and colorectal cancer. The data that I understand so far is the microcytic unstable tumors. Uh, seem to have response. 
where should we fit them in? The, the patient that was discussed is someone in adjuvant therapy, but obviously there's also patients with metastatic disease, and just seeing how a doc knows where to fit that in in their therapy. If for a metastatic patient early on or later on, or, or, and how's it working? So, you know, the center of care remains uh, chemotherapy or combination of chemotherapy and bevacizumab targeted therapy. However, when these patients do progress in the metastatic setting on a first line or even, you know, beyond that, it would be a good idea to consider immunotherapy in MSI uh, high tumor. And the theory behind the rationale for that is that those tumors are pretty much uh, lack the enzyme for the, uh, the uh, DNA repair enzyme, and therefore uh, the immune system is able to see those because you have more antigen presentation. So I think the uh, field is still open to, or remain open to know where we fit immunotherapy in this paradigm, but uh, as far as activity goes, we know that over probably 60% or more response rate we have with MSI high, so it's very reasonable to offer these patients immunotherapy after they fail standard of care. Do they have to be Lynch syndrome patients, or any MSI high tumors seem to be responsive to these uh, in metastatic disease? So the data is based on the Young Lee data that was presented back a couple of years ago now uh, from the Hopkins group, with the uh, enrolled patients with uh, colorectal MSI high and patients with MSS colorectal and MSI high non-colorectal. And both MSI high, whether they are colorectal or non-colorectal, did respond to the uh, NTPD1 uh, uh, therapy. So they could be uh, patients with MSI no matter whether they're colorectal or no. Again, where should we fit them in as sort of early on in therapy or after they progress on other treatments? Well, again, it's still, still, this is still considered investigational. This is still not FDA approved. I would be cautious to rush into putting this as a first line unless patients are unable to, we know that they will not be able to tolerate chemotherapy, knowing that immunotherapy is better tolerated. That probably would be the only case where, where we can we can use that as a first line. But otherwise, I would like always to use a standard of care because, as you know, the majority of colorectal cancer patients would have a good response with the standard of care treatment. Only about 3 to 4% of metastatic colorectal cancers are MSI high. Where is immunotherapy going to fit in on the rest of the patients, the vast majority who have microcellulite stable disease? Will it fit in, and what are the current trials ongoing to look at that question? So that's a great question. The majority of colorectal cancer right now don't respond to immunotherapy because they're not MSI high, as we, uh, you just said. The, wh where the field is moving is obviously to combinational therapy and whether to combine immunotherapy with chemotherapy, if there's a rationale for that. So there is ongoing trial uh, in the metastatic setting with a combination of pembrolizumab and chemotherapy. There will be uh, uh, other combination uh, clinical trials open. We are in the process of opening uh, radiation therapy in combination uh, with pembrolizumab in the neoadjuvant setting uh, as well. And at the Center for Immuno-Oncology, we have clinical trials that actually are open for all comers, and we have expansion cohorts that mainly focus on uh, specific diseases and colorectal cancers sometimes is one of those. And what we combine is immune checkpoint inhibitors together. Right now we have a lot of targets that we've learned about, including LAC3, TIM3, and others. 
Uh, we also combine uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor with co-stimulatory uh, molecules, agonist, and it's, uh, we, we feel that this is an, a, a very interesting area for investigation. We uh, d definitely are very careful with toxicities with those, but we have studies that are open, again, for colorectal non-MSI high tumors where we would be able to enroll these patients on combination therapies. And in the adjuvant setting, again, I think there's no data to date, there will be a, soon an alliance trial that will look specifically at using Fulfox plus or minus atezolizumab, and again in the MSI high tumors. So hopefully then we'll have an answer in several years where it may fit in that particular subset of colorectal cancers, or colon cancers actually in that case, and then again looking at microsolid stable tumors, hopefully it'll be down the line. Thank you very much, Osama. This has been very helpful for our listeners. Thank you. So, Jeff, another great session with Matt and Osama about patients who are coming to us after getting diagnosed with Lynch syndrome, but not with their first presentation, which was 15 to 20 years ago for this man, because we just didn't routinely test people at that time, but with their second cancer uh, or with relatives getting cancers, they're coming to us. So it was very interesting, and it seems that these Lynch syndrome patients are molecularly different. And not only do surgically we have to treat them differently, but uh, Osama brought up some points about how their chemotherapy may be different and more individualized. Yeah, and so, I, and it's, it's actually the interesting part also is we have been testing for microcell instability for screening for Lynch syndrome, but now with the field of immunotherapy, it's clear that there's going to be a dual role to be able to test these patients. And what we know about MSI high tumors is some of them are Lynch and some are sporadic just within, you know, the tumor, and they're not Lynch-based. But for both of them, the immunotherapy seems to be a therapeutic option, and we have some small data sets so far showing that these are tumors that are very responsive to the checkpoint inhibitors by themselves, either a PD-1 inhibitor or a PD-L1 inhibitor. We're now going to have multiple trials to really look at what's the right setting. Should, can they be added to first-line therapy for patients with metastatic disease? That's a very small percentage of metastatic patients, only about 4% are MSI high. Some of them are going to be Lynch, and some of them are going to be sporadic. But seeing should they be given as a single agent in metastatic disease, should they be combined with other chemotherapy? And then also through the NCI cooperative groups, they'll soon be open a trial looking at using them in adjuvant therapy for stage 3 patients, that's a higher percentage of stage 3 patients, about 10 to 15% will be MSI high. And those stage 2 MSI high patients have a better prognosis. That's not clear in stage 3 that their prognosis is better. So adding additional therapies hopefully will be beneficial to them. Yeah, this is very exciting because it's a new class of agents, and when you think about it, we haven't had one for a while in colorectal um, adjuvant therapy and chemotherapy. We've been able to administer the ones that we have probably better and more effectively, but this is really a new class of agents. Yeah, and we had a period of time, you know, when I first finished fellowship for about a decade, where there was a new drug being approved every year or two, and now we actually haven't had anything approved except for the oral therapies in sort of really a salvage set setting for a bunch of years. 
And so this whole class, which has been shown a lot of activity in other cancer types, is, is starting to show some activity in colorectal. And the other sort of big area of research is what happened if you're not MSI high? You know, could you use immunotherapy as a single agent? They're not very active, but there are some studies trying to combine them with other strategies that may prime the tumor to make them sensitive to these agents. Yeah. So a very exciting time. I think surgically, not much has changed that if you get these patients identified before they go to surgery, then you adjust your operation to make it not only curative if they have a cancer, but also palliative for the, to prevent the next one. And in women in particular, you also have to get your gynecologist on board to think about a prophylactic hysterectomy since uterine cancer is very high. In yeah, or at least screening for that and other associated cancers. Great. Well, again, a very exciting podcast, and uh, it's going to be an exciting few years as these trials uh, mature. I agree. Right. Thanks. Thanks.